I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you all, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I, I, I just love that verse. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Wow. Guys, today we're looking at a piece of scripture that's amazing. Last week, we looked at Paul's greeting to the Philippian church, and what we also did was look at the context of this whole book, of why Paul is writing this book in the first place. And so, we looked last week at Paul's greeting, his humble, unifying call of Unity to this church greeting. I'm a slave to Christ. Timothy and I are slaves to Christ. And all of you in the Philippian church are also slaves to Christ. So we shouldn't look at one another as more, more uh, better. We shouldn't look at one another and say, my interests are more important than that person's interests. Paul is putting himself on the same playing field of this church. And he's reminding them what we saw last week of the grace and peace that they have in our God, in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But we didn't only just take time to look at that. We took some time to look at the birthing story of this church because this sets up the whole entire letter. When we know what's going on in Paul's heart here, writing to this church, we can better understand what he's trying to communicate. And so this morning, what we are going to do is we're going to look at this very, very affectionate thanksgiving and prayer that Paul has. What we get to do this morning, and this is one of the wow factors of this passage, is that we get to actually pull back the curtain to Paul's heart and see what makes him thankful and what he prays for, specifically for this church. I mean, think about it. Paul is a real person writing a real letter and what we get to see this morning is what makes him thankful and what he prays for. But before we move forward, I just want to take a moment or two to remind us specifically that Paul, he's a sufferer. He is a trial man. He is experiencing trials of various kinds, and yet he still has 
the ability to say, you, church, meet my prayers with joy. Paul, a man who's been shipwrecked, who's been bitten by venomous snakes, who was beaten multiple times, thrown out of towns, imprisoned, accused. I mean, if there's not a person who hasn't suffered more than Paul, then, then guys, I just don't know. <laughs> and so we, we come to this book and we see that Paul, a man who is suffering, a man who is experiencing trials, a man right now as he is writing these verses, this letter to this church, Here's the shackles clinging. I mean, Paul is literally chained to a Roman soldier as he's writing this, constantly being reminded of his imprisonment, constantly being reminded, I don't know when I'm getting out. And he's writing this letter to a church that is also suffering. And so what we're going to see this morning is that Paul is taking this normal greeting, this normal thanksgiving and transforming it into an affectionate thanksgiving and prayer for the church. It's, it's really amazing. I don't want us to miss this this morning because we are going to see what Paul is thankful for and what his prayers to this church looks like. But this is where it's going to be tough and strange for us. Is that this normally, how Paul is praying and what Paul is being thankful for, isn't the way we think most of the time when we thank God and when we pray. What we need to pay attention to then today is that gospel unity and gospel growth is, that, is what Paul is thanking God for and praying for. But this, this isn't normally what we see people thankful for and praying for. We don't normally see people thanking God for gospel unity and gospel growth. Most of the time, our thankfulness and our prayers are very quickly turned in on themselves and more thankful for the circumstances and things around us which I would say Paul wouldn't necessarily say that's a bad thing to be thankful for. But far too often, those are the first things that we're thankful for. And so let's look at what makes this so different. Let's take some time, and we're going to look at Paul's thanksgiving. So verses 3 through 8 is going to be Paul's thanksgiving. We're going to see three things that Paul is specifically thankful for. And then what we'll do is in verses 9 and 11, we'll see what he's praying for for this church. After that, we're just going to apply it in a few ways. Because I really think, I just after meditating on this passage, I really think that if this is our heart's desire, if our heart is aligned with Paul here, and the gates of hell won't prevail. They just won't. That's the promise Jesus gives us. And so let's look at verses 3 through 5. Paul leaves no room or doubt or misunderstanding or anything regarding his feeling to this church. He tells them right off the bat, 
right away. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayers with joy. Paul's mind right away here is flooded with God's great work in this church. He's reminded of how this church started. Since the time he left to now, every time Paul is reminded of this church, his heart bursts with gratitude towards God. And not only gratitude, but he tells us when he prays for him, this is a gratitude of joy. Paul is in prison, and yet when he is praying and thinking about this church, he can't help but be moved. He can't help but be joyful. And the reason for this was because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Since the conception, the very first start of the Philippian church, there was a partnership and a fellowship that far outlasted and outweighed any other church that Paul has come into contact with. I'm sure Paul's mind would have just been flooded with memories. He would have remembered of that little old prayer meeting outside the town. That as he went, he met a businesswoman named Lydia and he preached the gospel to her and she said, I believe, baptize me right now, Paul. And what is her first response after that? It's hospitality. It's come, come over. I want to host you and Silas and Timothy. Stay with me. And so the first thing that Paul is thanking God for is Their active fellowship. The word participation here is this active fellowship that is going on. He's reminded of from the very beginning, within moments of Lydia's conversion, there is this stirring in her heart to be unified to her brothers. We look at the Philippian jailer and we see the same exact thing. As he takes Paul and Silas into his home and washes their wounds. There is this active fellowship with them. Now this means two things that Paul is talking about here. He is talking about the the partnership that they have, the participation that they have with him on his mission, that they supported him and continue to support him. And this means the active participation in the advancement of the gospel in the city of Philippi. You see, the Philippian church, what we're going to notice here, they're not fair-weathered friends. That's one thing that they aren't. They may have their problems, which we're going to see. They may be suffering and going through trials like persecution from the Roman government and false teachers all around them trying to infiltrate them and um, anxiety of not knowing if Paul's going to make it out. There is dis- there's, there's a, a dysfunctional relationship between two women that Paul is going to call out because he's afraid it's going to cause disunity in the church. But there's one thing this church isn't, and that's a fair-weathered friend. No, this church is a ride-or-die friend. We're with you, Paul. We've been with you, Paul. And Paul can't help but be so excited and joyful because of their active fellowship with him in 
their support of his ministry and the active obedience of seeing the gospel brought to their fellow citizens in Philippi. Paul is thanking God that this wasn't a church that just picked up a new fad. Paul is thanking God that this isn't a church that says, let me try on these pair of jeans. No, I don't like them. Okay, let me throw them away. Paul is deeply grateful and joyful that this is a church that even when things got uncomfortable and messy around them, they stuck with it. And we see one of the most bold claims I believe Paul makes in all of Scripture. Because of this participation of the fellowship of the gospel work advanced both in their support of Paul and in their city, Paul goes on to say that he is sure of it, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. This is a bold claim that Paul is making. He's saying, I'm sure of it. That he who began, he who began, God who began the good work, the gospel transformation in your heart, will absolutely, I have no doubt in my mind, bring it to completion. What Paul is saying here is that the God who is sovereign to save you is the God who is sovereign to keep you. The one who has sealed you with the Holy Spirit has sealed you for all eternity. But Paul here isn't only drawing out the implications of the perseverance of or the preservation of the saints. What makes Paul so sure that this is the Philippian church? What makes Paul make such a big and bold claim? He's not God. Well, Paul is in complete alignment with what James tells us. Too many people pit Paul and James against each other, which is so unfair. A lot of people will say, Paul is this, you are saved by your faith and grace. Paul is the, the dude that believes in election and predestination, whereas James is this dude where he's more of, you earn your faith by your works. But this isn't true, and that's just a bad interpretation and, and teaching of this. Paul and James are completely and utterly aligned in their understanding of the gospel. What Paul is saying here is that he's absolutely sure that the Philippian church is going to be brought to the end is because he sees that the work that they are doing has been produced from the faith that has been imparted by, to them. It's because the gospel has so radically transformed them that they can't help but participate in this great work that Paul has called them to. They can't help but see the gospel as being so true that they couldn't do anything other than participate with Paul in his mission. And so Paul here is absolutely sure because of the work produced by their faith in God 
that it will continue to transform them in the gospel until Jesus returns. And so the second thing that Paul is thanking God for is for their sanctification. Paul is thanking God for their sanctification. (laughs) How many times do we take time to just thank God for sanctifying me? How many times do we just thank God for sanctifying our children? How many times do we thank God for sanctifying our church? Paul is seeing with his own two eyes that this church, although small and poor, is being sanctified by God through their active participation in advancing the gospel. Whether it's through their support of him or their their active obedience to see their city, Philippi, know the glory of Jesus Christ. Because of that, he is full of thanksgiving and joy towards God. So we can tell. We can tell by certain words in here like thanksgiving and joy and um, partnership. We could just tell that Paul is feeling some type of way. He actually gives us a great image of how he's feeling. Paul goes on to tell them, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know what Paul is having here? Paul is having a gut-wrenching emotional reaction here. That's what's going on. Is this gratitude and joy is causing him to feel some type of way. This word yearning here, we could also translate it into his bowels are moving. That's how joyful and thankful he is for this church. Or maybe in a more friendlier way, because that image might be like, I had some bad tuna, and so my bowels are turning or moving. Paul here is saying that I am so thankful and joyful for you that I have butterflies in my stomach. And you know what's so amazing about this verse? As I was thinking about this, I was out snow blowing and I was thinking about this, is that this, he says, with the affections of Christ Jesus, this is how Christ Jesus thinks of his church. When the church is unified and sanctified and growing in his likeness and image, he can't help but have this affectionate reaction of butterflies in his stomach towards us. That's amazing. But before Paul tells us this, He gives us one more thing that he is thankful for, for this church. And he says that 
that you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is telling them that the reason he can be so sure, that the reason he is confident that they're going to make it to the end and continue to be transformed is because the same grace that has been imparted to him by Christ Jesus is the same grace that has been parted into this church. Paul knows this because of their fellowship, because of their unity with him, both in good times and bad. You see, the Philippians aren't supporting Paul for his fame. The Philippian church isn't trying to ride on Paul's coattail. The Philippian church is this ride or die friend. They're not fair-weathered friends. We all know those type of friends. We know the type of friends that are with us in the good times and as soon as things start to go sideways, they slowly start to back off. Right? You know those friends that you get texts from all the time and as soon as things start to go a little bit haywire, they start to, as the, the kids say these days, ghost you or just slowly stop texting you. This isn't this church. Paul is imprisoned and they are still reaching out to Paul, telling him, we are with you, Paul. We are with you on the mountaintops. We are with you in the valleys. More specifically for Paul, we are with you when you're preaching the gospel. We are with you when you are imprisoned. So lastly, Paul is thanking God for this church because he's saying, look, I know you're true believers because of the grace that has taken hold in your heart. Only someone who has been transformed by the grace of God would respond in such unity and ambition in the gospel work carried out. Essentially, in Paul's thanksgiving and what we'll see in his prayers, he's just reminding this church of the gospel. If you take time to read the first chapter of almost every single one of Paul's letters, what you will see him do, this is a common theme for Paul, is he's first going to remind each church of the gospel. That's what he does. He reminds them of the gospel and then he applies it to their life. And it's no different right here. He's weaving the gospel into this thanksgiving and this prayer. What Paul is saying is he's saying, look, I was there when I preached the gospel to most of you. And I saw it take root in your heart right away. I told you that it was only through Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection that you could have eternal life and be at peace with God. It's not your good works. You cannot bring your good works in this lifetime to God and say, look at what I've done. He doesn't accept you on that. You cannot bow your knee to Caesar. That does not earn you eternal life. What does is picking up your cross, confessing 
that you cannot earn your way to heaven, but somebody else has, Jesus has. This is what Paul is reminding them, and then he is saying, and this gospel that has taken root in your heart is confirmed by how you're living your life. This is what Paul is saying, that the free gospel promise that I proclaimed to you then is true, and the gospel promise that I'm still proclaiming to you now is what is true. You see, something amazing happens when this gospel takes root in your heart, where you once were a loner in this world. You were purchased and bought into a family. where you were once aimlessly walking around asking, what is my purpose in life? You are given a purpose to worship God. And so what Paul is doing is he's thanking God for saving and sanctifying this church. Right after this thanksgiving he then prays for the philippians and like his thanksgiving for the philippians his prayer is just incredible his prayer is amazing imagine receiving a letter from a friend who is in prison and you are worried sick about them not only that you have no idea when their release date is going to be. And on top of that, there is talk that they might be put to death. <laughs> Would you expect your friend, the first, let's just, eight verses, few sentences, to respond this way? Wouldn't it just lift your spirits and set you on cloud nine if this is how your friend responded to you? Oh, I'm thanking God for you. I'm thanking God for the unity we have. I'm thanking God that I'm seeing sanctification and hearing about sanctification in your life. This is what Paul is writing to them for. And his prayer is only more amazing because what we're going to see is Paul does not pray for worldly success for this church. You see, we, you can learn a lot about a person, about how they pray about another person. In verses 9 through 11, we see Paul's love for this church in such a unique way. He tells them, he tells them, it is my prayer that, you love, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ fulfilled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer for this church isn't success. Paul's prayer for this church isn't that their circumstances around them would, in, would get better. It's not that the trials and the false teachers and the anxiousness would go away. I love how Paul's perspective is all about the spiritual unity and growth of God's people. And this specific prayer, this specific prayer 
is a prayer that we need desperately right now for our church and churches across the world. Paul's prayer is that they would just increase in love. Increase in love. Love. And then he says, knowledge and discernment. Paul wants this church to become spiritually mature. He wants to see the gospel grow in their hearts. He isn't concerned about necessarily what's going on around them. He's concerned about the purity of the church, their unity and their growth. In what? In love. Paul even says that, their, that your love would abound more and more. So Paul is actually saying that they would abound in love more and more and more. His prayer for this church is that their love would be like an overflowing cup placed underneath a waterfall. So that they would grow in their knowledge and discernment. So what does Paul mean by this? He means so that they know what is of God and not. So that they don't pick up petty arguments with one another. So that they can discern and have knowledge about what fights to battle and what fights just to leave. It's so that they each would fulfill and understand the great commandment of loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And by doing this, they will become a people of deep, deep, deep integrity. That the world would look at them as totally different. Or as Jesus would say, a city on a hill Paul is going to challenge them later on in this book that they would be people that would count the interests of others more highly than their own. And so he is praying this. He's praying this that they would abide in Christ. Do you know why Paul's prayer right here is for love? And then why he goes on to say, so that you may approve what is excellent, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, fulfilled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. He says this because love is the natural outflow of a transformed heart. Somebody who has had an experience with the living Christ is a person of love. And let me just say this for us, as clearly and maybe as boldly as possible, a person who doesn't love like Paul or at least daily pursues love like Paul is a person who has not experienced God's love. 
Jesus tells us that we would abide in him and it would be because of his love. He tells us that the world would know who we are by the way his disciples love one another. When we are known as a church for our love and abiding in Christ Jesus, then we will be glorifying and praising God. When this is what we are known for, we look strange to the world. Why? Because the world does not operate in this type of love. The world's type of love is of selfishness, of personal gain. The world's love ultimately does not think about another person for the sake of selflessness, but they think of another person for the gain of their selfishness. And yet Paul is calling, and what we will continue to see, Paul will call this church to an uncanny selflessness produced by the love of Christ. So let's conclude by asking them, Let's ask the question. Paul wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. So how should we then live today in regards to what Paul has written? This is in my notes, but this is why we do this. We, we preach through the Bible because we believe it is the perfect word of God for God's people to live by. But we need to be careful when we apply it, not to accidentally apply it in, in ways that don't ultimately matter. But we need to apply the Word of God. We've, I've, I've hopefully just laid out for you that the reason why Paul is so thankful and why his prayer is the way it is is because of the gospel growth of obedience in their life and the unity that they have as a church. So, so how can we apply this? Well, I think we can apply it in three ways, all right? This is my deep prayer for us. First, Paul is thankful for spiritual matters. He's not thankful for current circumstances. Paul is looking at the bigger picture of things here. Do you look at the bigger picture of things? Paul is thanking God for his unity with this church and their growth in Christ. Far too often, look, look at me guys, I know that because of trials that are around us, I know because of the landmines of affliction or hardships as they go off around us, it is hard to look to Christ. But Paul was a one-minded man that was so completely focused on the bigger picture of things. And he doesn't do that. He looks at the spiritual maturity of this church which leaves him to say, how could God not bring them to completion? 
God is working not despite your circumstances, but in your circumstances right now so that you could grow to be more spiritually mature and be more unified to your local church. We must pay attention. We must pay attention to what he is doing and how he is growing us. Let's have blinders on that are looking for those things. Our spiritual maturity and the unity for this church. Paul is, that's what Paul is thanking him, thanking God for. Do we thank God for that? Second, sanctification comes by God through service and active obedience of being partakers in the mission of God. If you are looking, which I hope all of us are, if you are looking to grow to be more like Christ, then just start obeying his word. If you are reading 1 John and you are reading how um, to, that you're to love one another, then love one another. If you're reading in 2 Corinthians and you're reading Paul say that you should be a generous giver, ask God, God, put it on my heart right now to somebody that I can give to today and just do it. If you're reading in the Gospels and you read Jesus say, love your enemy, text the person that you're having a hard time dealing with. Or pray for that person if you can't do that. And pray for their well-being. Don't, don't pray that God would reveal their sin to them because they're the problem here. Pray that God would be gracious and love them and that God would give you a heart to love them well because God has loved you, his number one enemy, so well. And so if you want to experience sanctification, if you want to experience a deeper relationship with Christ, then start obeying his word evangelize, start serving. Invite your neighbor over for dinner. And lastly, this last one trickles in to, this, to the second one. <clears throat> this is far too often neglected. And honestly, it wasn't even something that was on my radar until I was studying this passage. Thank God for godly men and commentaries. One of the Philippian commentaries, a, a man, um, I, can't think of, I can't pronounce his last name, but his first name is Frank. So Frank the theologian brought this to my attention, and I just thought it was so great. Sanctification also, we can't forget about this. We forget about this. We're, we are individualized Americans that have been brought up in a very individualistic lifestyle. But this is the primary way that the Philippian church, one of the primary ways that the Philippian church was sanctified. And that's fellowship. Let me tell you, there is nothing that will sanctify you more than hanging around a bunch of sinful people. It is easy to sit at home on your phone or behind your keyboard and spew out loveless Facebook posts and pretend to be a loving person. Or at least think you're a loving person. 
If you want to grow to be more like Christ, if you want the gospel growth like Paul is thanking God for here and having this gut-wrenching, uh, um, emotional, affectionate reaction to, start fellowshipping with people. And look, I know right now it may seem to be hard, and this is my prayer. This is, this is something that we as elders have been praying about, is one of the things that we are worried about, and one of the things that the the through COVID, one thing that at large, a lot of churches are just noticing is that there are going to be people, and yes, here I'm, I'm talking to those watching on Facebook, and I don't think it's wrong that, that you're necessarily at home, but there is a deep sense of the gathering of believers. And my fear is that some may get complacent and say, well, I'll just watch the service. I don't need to actually fellowship and come on Sundays, or I don't need to actually go to different um, things of fellowship because I can do this on my own. And let me tell you, you can't. Attending church is a spiritual discipline. And so we're praying for those who have this deep conviction that they just can't come right now. We're, we're praying for you that, that as you enter back into the life of this church, and we can't wait for that day. Look, I cannot wait for the day that we are all here worshiping and singing as loud as we can. But sanctification comes by fellowshipping with a body, with a local church, and committing yourself to that local church. Look, I'm going to specifically talk to those who are maybe younger here. You need sanctification by hanging out with older, godly people. People who are older than you. All right, I'm looking at the, the, the three couples right here. Well, four couples. All right. Well, We've got a lot more young adults in here than I thought. So I'm just going to say, I'm looking at you, young adults. I see you. You don't have it all figured out. You may think you do. You don't. And you need godly people who are older than you pouring into you. Because one, they're going to challenge you and sanctify you because you're going to look at their old methods and be annoyed by them. You are. And it's going to help you grow in your love. It's going to help you grow and I'm, now I'm, I'm looking at those who are older. You need younger people who are godly in your life to challenge you to keep going. You have not retired yet. Not until Jesus calls you home. You are not done. And you need to find somebody younger than you to challenge you, to give you that energy. And you know what? They're going to sanctify you. Because they're going to test your patience. But the church experiences sanctification when they fellowship with one another. We cannot neglect that. We cannot let that happen to this church. We must, like Paul here, pursue a thankfulness and a prayer that is all around the unity and the growth in the gospel. You see, Paul, Paul here is still sharing. He's still sharing with us the secret of contentment. He's not saying it's easy. Look, Jesus never promised it being easy. He says, pick up the cross and follow me. Jesus doesn't say in Matthew 11... 
that there is no yoke. There is a yoke, but he promises that it's easier than the yoke of this world. But there still is a yoke. And so he's not saying that it's an easy thing to find contentment, but it's totally worth it. He's showing us that our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another is so crucial to this life. Paul is thankful for this church's fellowship with God and one another. And so here's the thing that I just want to leave us with. If Paul had planted this church and he was writing back to you, do you think he would honestly say that he would be thankful for the fellowship with God and with one another for this church or not? If so, then let's keep going. If not, let's repent and move forward in the grace of Jesus Christ 